the whole experience I mm. think of coming to a university program, especially in law, should be one infused in the idea that you're leaving the communities that matter to you better than you found them. Hello and welcome to another episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the Project Coordinator at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at Windsor Law. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the Director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And today uh, we've got a really great conversation, Julie, that you had with uh, Lauren Sosin, who is the Dean of Osgoode Hall Law School. That's right. And uh, in many ways, Lorne doesn't need a lot of introduction, but uh, let me instead introduce him this way. I decided about a year ago now that uh, it was time for me to try to persuade Lorne to come on the NSROP board. And, you know, in many ways, the reasons that I would go after Lorne, um, although I knew I was in competition with pretty much every other Access to Justice initiative in Canada <laughs> in trying to get him onto my board, the reason was, you know, in many ways obvious. His name is really kind of synonymous with the Access to Justice movement in Canada. He's worked for years on university community clinics. He seems to be everywhere working on access to justice initiatives, community initiatives, and he also has a brilliant reputation as an administrative law scholar. But actually, none of those were really the reason that I wanted Lorne on the board. The most important reason was that I knew from getting to know Lorne and talking to him that he was really willing to take on difficult issues and be public about criticisms that sometimes made him unpopular. Uh, I was always very impressed with his willingness to do that. And in this incredibly tactful way, he has nonetheless to hold some of the the sacred places in the, in the legal establishment that people don't want to go hold them to account. So when I talked to Lorne, the conversation always felt real, not mm -hmm. full of platitudes, but, but really about action. And I remember very vividly meeting him for a coffee right after he was elected for the second time um, to a term as Dean at Osgood. And he, he already struck me as more relaxed and more outspoken on issues and more willing to court controversy and to be critical in his kind and constructive way. So I asked him, do you kind of feel like Obama in his <laughs> second term? And uh, he thought about that, and with a big smile, he conceded, well, yeah, actually, I think that's pretty much right. I've got another term in which I can have an impact and speak up for change, and that's what I'm going to do. And so here we go with just how far can a law school dean go? Hello, Lauren. It's Julie. How are you? I'm doing very well. It's good to hear from you. Nice, nice to hear from you, and thank you so much for being willing to do this. And, you know, can I say just right off the bat that uh, you are a very challenging person to plan a 20-minute conversation with because there is so much you do <laughs> <laughs> and so much I want to ask you about. So um, I have a sort of slightly eclectic group of questions here, which uh, I hope will be, you know, it certainly reflects the breadth of the work that you do. 
Um, and I want to start with your work as an administrative law scholar because this is really um, the place I think that in terms of your academic work that you would you would most naturally locate yourself. And and I want to ask you about tribunals because I remember uh, as a student, in fact, as a law student, it was it was just when we were starting to see the development of administrative tribunal systems outside the courts to deal with certain kinds of disputes. Uh, and the idea was they were going to be people-focused and more informal than the court system, uh, less intimidating, and they would use specialists who were trained not just in law but in that area, whether that was human rights, environmental protection, workers' rights. So sort of a miniature legal system but more practical and hands-on. So can you talk a bit about how in the last 25, 30 years, how well has that worked out? And do you really still think that a tribunal system can offer more accessible justice? You're right in saying that as an alternative to the formal court system, uh, most, if not all, tribunals have as part of their mandate being more accessible. They're not uh, reduced, for example, to... Uh, formal adversarial kind of process. They're not reduced, for example, to having only legally trained decision makers. And mm-hmm. the review board, for example, which hears uh, applications from people receiving uh, medical treatment as part of the criminal uh, justice outcomes, they're going to have a medically trained uh, person on that board sitting right. with a legally trained person uh, and then someone representing a kind of public interest who might be neither legally or medically trained that holistic approach, that ability to respond to expertise, and most importantly, the flexibility of process, and often, if not always, at no cost to the participants, uh, is really a key component of accessible justice. So just to give you an example, the uh, now landlord-tenant board that started out uh, Mm -hmm. as a rental housing tribunal I mean, that body alone uh, hears or resolves 80,000 cases uh, annually, more or less. And there's just no way a court system could grapple with that. And yet, what does it mean to provide fairness in what might be a 25-minute hearing? So that idea of administrative justice brings with it both accessibility, but also challenges around independence, uh, fairness, and it takes creativity and commitment, I think, for it to live up to the promise that I very much think it has. And I think we've yet to tap its full potential, and we'll see, in my view, a lot more of it in the future, more of it moving online into more flexible uh, mm. ways of processing. Mm. But I think it's going to be a big part of the future. Well, let me ask you just quickly a little bit before we move on from this subject about representation in tribunals, because that's one of the things that I think... Um, raises some of the concerns that you've talked about. I mean, the landlord-tenant um, board is a good example of where you would much more likely find one side with legal counsel than the other. We have a similar process, uh, a similar problem uh, at the licensing appeal tribunal around the homeowner's warranty scheme where pretty much right. everybody who comes as a member of the public is without counsel and pretty much everybody who comes with some kind of a um, institutional or a corporate affiliation has counsel. And of course, then we have the BC uh, Innovation uh, with their online tribunal in which extremely controversially they've decided no lawyers at all. So what do you think is the representation 
issue here. I think here. Uh, you know, they pulled back a little from that uh, with the help of the D.C. Law Society so that now it's it's still able to be accessed without uh, a lawyer, but their initial view that they wanted to really keep lawyers out of the process is, mm. has been modified. So, you know, I think there is a push and a pull. I mean, ideally, many of these tribunals uh, ought to be uh, able to be accessed uh, by uh, most people for most problems uh, without the need of any assistance. In other words, the reason you need legal assistance is often because of the complexity uh, and the nature of the process and its simplification around how we access dispute resolution can be a form of access to justice in and of itself. So mm. those cases are where you have someone who's vulnerable, the consequences are significant, and the law being applied by a tribunal is complex, absolutely that uh, point of access is key. But remember, there's also that flexibility in process. So you can introduce, for example, more of what we now call active adjudication, the idea that a decision maker or a tribunal uh, can itself provide uh, some of the gap filling if you've got that one mm. party represented, one party not represented, really to make sure that the tribunal has all the information and perspective it needs, unlike a court where that judge is sitting passively in most cases, simply receiving whatever the argument or submissions the parties make, a tribunal can be more inquisitorial in some cases or engaged and interactive in other cases, but it doesn't need to sit back passively and let that inequality of uh, representation have the potential to lead to miscarriages of justice. So let me change topic here somewhat abruptly sure. but because I really want to get your uh, response to this next question have enough time to talk about it um, because you often comment lawn on public affairs this has enabled me to ask you a question about Robin Camp and just so that people remember Robin Camp was the Alberta judge who um, is somewhat infamous now for asking the victim in a sexual assault trial why she hadn't kept her legs together to avoid being raped. Um, that was just one of other somewhat offensive and insensitive comments. And you wrote about the judicial, the Canadian Judicial Council's report that recommended that Robin Camp be removed from the bench, which was their recommendation, as a sea change. You called it a sea change in discussions of judicial sexism. Okay. Now. As we both know, and most listeners will know too, Robin Camp was eventually removed, but not before a huge fight broke out over this recommendation. And that fight involved some, you know, very prestigious names in the legal establishment, uh, some of whom lobbied very fiercely for Robin Camp, saying that the removal was not appropriate. Um, so a sea change, but a sea change with a big fight. So help me understand what was really going on here, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think the backdrop is absolutely um, uh, what, you know, whether it's a sea change or a kind of culture change, something uh, significant and systemic is uh, going on. And in fact, it's moving with one step forward, one step sideways, hmm. arguably half a step back uh, in light of recent <laughs> headlines. But I think that idea that the criminal justice system needs to both be and be seen to be shared uh, is putting real pressure on 
how we see the experience, uh, in particular, of complainants and sexual assault. So what was going on in the CAP case was really interesting in kind of two respects. One is that it raised the question of uh, Camp's own justice, former Justice Camp's own view, that, well, lots of people express these views. Why is he being singled out? Yeah. And again, that's true. In my view, it doesn't speak to taking a different view of uh, his conduct or what the consequences should be. But it does bring up issues of general uh, training, uh, education, acculturation yeah. uh, to a very importantly changed set of perspectives on how the law applies uh, in these areas. And again, we're seeing that uh, move in very important but not linear uh, ways to a, a more progressive understanding. But the second aspect was uh, really, uh, and this is what was more dividing, I think, of the legal community, uh, is this notion after uh, some individual sessions, I think it was with um, uh, Professor uh, Professor Brenda Kaufman. Brenda Kaufman, yeah. So, uh, you know, can one be uh, redeemed? In other words, mm. one, uh, move from a recognition of uh, characterizations of uh, events and uh, or applications of the law that were inappropriate. And again, applications of law that are inappropriate, we're actually fine with because we've got courts of appeal or the Supreme Court. We've got mechanisms for error correction that ought to be uh, right. effective. In fact, in this case, uh, did result in that um, uh, a new trial and, and the rest. But but this went beyond legal error, didn't it? This went, exactly. this went much so, deeper. So it's when you go to the conduct and ethics mm. of, uh, of a judge, that's where this question of do you get a second uh, chance. And I think the conclusion of the Judicial Council, and this is what ultimately leads uh, to his departure from the bench, is that some kinds of errors just so undermine public confidence in the judiciary mm-hmm. that you can't simply take a course and make it uh, make it right again. Now, that may or may not be fair to Mr. Camp. And again, I don't know enough of the individual circumstances. We can't look into someone's heart and mind to know, are they really redeemed or was this all just kind of an advocacy arrangement to try to avoid the consequences. But I do think that that notion of undermining public confidence is what is driving the sea change. And as long as any part of the justice system, especially the criminal justice system, has this kind of gap or dissonance from where the culture and community views are at, it creates a problem and attention, and I think we're seeing that in the reaction of large swaths of our community to some of these uh, trials involving sexual assault or harassment, and that clearly is something that needs to be addressed. So, switching topic again, Lauren, in the course of your law school career, you've been very involved in community-based programs, often clinical programs, and uh, I know that you're now the special advisor to the president of York University on what is described as community engagement, um, right. something that you also have a program within Osgood um, called Access Osgood, which has some community engagement goals. So, you know, we know this is a huge university. York is a huge university. It has over 50,000 students. It has two enormous campuses. And, you know, forgive me for a certain amount of cynicism here, but, but tell me how you see a university simply of that size establish a 
really constructive engagement presence in a residential community that isn't just about a parallel universe. It just isn't just about a town gown, two communities living side by side. So what is, what is your vision for that? Yeah, that's a great uh, uh, area to explore, and I think a, a, an enormous potential of public institutions. And by the way, I'd include courts and tribunals as well as universities. Oh, interesting. Yes. Yeah. I think they all share this sense of a commitment to community and to the public interest, but there are real physical and other kinds of uh, barriers that keep the public from accessing either actually or virtually uh, the, uh, the the aspects of these institutions that are really designed to serve the public. So in the university context, you know, there, there's really two ways of understanding community engagement, one familiar uh, and important and the other less familiar and, in my view, even more important. The, the familiar and the important is uh, having as part of that core mission of the university uh, education that is community-based, research that is uh, in community collaboration, making sure the university is focused outward and not inward. Uh, at Osgoode Hall Law School, for example, we have uh, 19 uh, clinical programs now, and the majority of them are in collaboration with a community-based clinic or NGO. The mm -hmm. Disability Rights uh, Intensive, for example, in collaboration with uh, Arch, or now a feminist advocacy clinic in collaboration with the Barbara Schleifer Commemorative Clinic, or investor protection work in collaboration with an NGO called FAIR. And I think that goal of getting students in the community, either providing services or gaining perspective and insight, uh, that is uh, the part that even though I say familiar because it's about our educational and our research mission, uh, it remains, uh, in my view, kind of core to whatever community engagement is going to amount to. But it's this other uh, path that I think is less well understood, and, and for that reason I think maybe even more important to shine a light on. And that's that these uh, institutions are also enormous employers. Mm -hmm. They be a difference maker in the part of the city, for example, that York University sits, uh, which is a, a, you know, a place where... Uh, unemployment and uh, social marginalization where barriers uh, to uh, prosperity uh, are real challenges. The university, by having a planned approach to, for example, uh, taking on uh, projects that involve local and independently owned businesses, uh, social procurement, so that, for example, when we spend money on catering or services or hospitality, a percentage is always going to support uh, those communities that are uh, in our front yard, backyard, uh, side yard. And then lastly, just having that uh, whole, and this kind of bridges the idea of universities as, as anchor institutions with that mission in research and teaching are all the volunteer opportunities from uh, the public interest requirement at Osgood that sees every law student engaged in at least 40 hours of community based legal work together with some reflective component afterwards to pro bono initiatives, to going into local high schools for mentorship. The whole experience I mm. think of coming to a university program, especially in law, should be one infused in the idea that you're leaving the community that matter to you better than you found them. And that may be local. It may, of course, be global. 
you know, with international human rights uh, internships or work on environmental programs. Uh, indigenous community uh, engagement is a, of course, burgeoning and vitally important um, uh, pathway to reconciliation. But all of it takes, I think, the university mission and the law school mission and and asks that question, what are you doing and how are you planning and what resources are you investing in supporting communities and leaving them better than you found them? And to me, that's a, a huge part of the mission and mandate of all universities and all mm. law schools, especially as we're all public institutions supported by public uh, dollars. And right, and, and, and on that point, you know, it, it really strikes me, Lon, that what you're talking about is another rather refraction of this idea of public confidence that we talked about a few minutes ago in relation to the Robin Camp case and the importance of people who see the courts, who see the judiciary, and who indeed see universities as part of what they are inevitably investing in as, as citizens and taxpayers, and the importance of building public confidence in an institution that has something to offer its community uh, rather than looking just inwards. And That's exactly right. Yeah, and, and you know, it's interesting because that sort of brings me to my last question to you. I, I hadn't sort of thought about that as a connection before when, when I was thinking about what I wanted to ask you because this last question is a bit more personal, but I think it does really relate to this idea of, of what our responsibilities are um, working within public institutions. And, you know, you may <laughs> blush when I say this, but I do know um, that you are a somewhat unusual academic, that you are willing to engage directly with the public in a number of ways that I'm aware of that I know that many other academics might feel they didn't really want to. And I'm talking about things like answering random emails, questions, <laughs> talking with and escorting self-represented litigants around Osgood Hall Law School when they came for their day's visit. And um, a number of them asked me, who was that really nice guy who walked around with us? And when I said, oh, he's the dean, they were somewhat taken aback. So I think that, you know, however kind people are as individuals, I think that it's not really that common for people in, you know, a relatively important and powerful position in the legal establishment to be able to listen to the concerns and the needs of the public in a direct way and to take those concerns seriously, which you seem to have a real gift for doing. So my question is, you know, why is that so difficult? for so many of us? Why do we prefer to hide in the ivory tower? And in particular, you know, what might you say to a new young academic about this idea of being willing to engage with the public and to work directly with them? You know, first of all, it's, uh, again, super uh, kind and, and uh, generous um, of you to frame the question in that way. And I, you know, I've uh, been at this for a number of years. I still find uh, it very much a work in progress in terms of how to how to do it better, how to have more impact, how to engage more effectively. But I think what drives at least what uh you know speaking now again more personally, what what drives uh my uh you know energy and commitment uh in, in this walk of life is always really been a sense of both curiosity, genuinely wanting to mm. uh, from people how legal problems 
about how problems come about, never mind what we characterize. I know, it's never endlessly fascinating, isn't it? (laughs) I agree. I think you also, you realize every time you talk to someone uh, that you haven't met before and see the experience through their eyes, you you can genuinely see uh, important uh, new dimensions, new dynamics, new implications of things Mm -hmm. that you care about. And that idea of seeing... Uh, you know, that idea, I think I mentioned earlier, the law of ideas and law in action as not sort of two disconnected uh, spheres or silos, yeah. as mutually interactive, reinforcing, and together having that impact. So it's not just, in other words, about uh, I can, you know, call up this person, fill out that form, and get a better result for someone. That's huge, and that's enormously empowering, but that you could also see a better way to understand the system, the best Access to justice is never to have the the dispute or problem arise in the first place because you've figured out a better policy mechanism. You've, you know, protected consumers from getting uh, ripped off rather than needing to worry about how to uh, get them legal assistance once they're trying to to make that harm go away. So for me, I think the the commitment to being as engaged an academic as I can be with my own community and with others around is both to enhance, you know, my own understanding, I, uh, it infuses my, my research, my teaching, and that in turn uh, opens up, you know, whole new avenues that I've found a lot of, uh, you know, fulfillment from, but also to feel like you're part of uh, changing that system for the better, even if in incremental ways or, you know, two steps forward, one step uh, back ways, or simply together with many others, raising the profile on what's not working as well as it needs to, uh, that to me is exactly what the uh, role of a law school, role of a law professor and um, uh, and our community uh, can be about. And I had great mentors who showed me, uh, you know, hints of that in, uh, in action. And uh, that learning, I think, uh, comes in both directions. Well, I don't think that I could possibly cap that statement, Lorne, uh, except just to add my own um, sort of reinforcement that I think that going on listening directly to the experiences that people have, and that includes the bad ones, and there are quite a lot of those around, is absolutely critical to the work that we do, to its credibility and to its efficacy. So thank you very much for being one of the people who really shows us a way on that. Thank you, Lauren. Exactly. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. I just have to say um, about Lauren, how wonderful it is to have him on our board of directors mm-hmm. or board of advisors, I should say. Um, and he just completely won my heart last year when at one point in a meeting he used the word mansplaining (laughs) and I don't remember what the context was but I was just completely charmed by that I thought well this is this is a great guy (laughs) so one of the things that really struck me about your conversation about Robin Camp Mm. was the idea came up about this whole argument about whether um, a justice can kind of be redeemed after saying yeah something like that and Lauren making the point, which I very much agree with, that that's a little bit beside the point. That in a case like this, saying something like that goes beyond legal error and undermines public confidence in the judiciary, because that's the that's the bigger issue here. Yeah, and I and I don't think that the standards are really the same for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, a judge is somebody who is 
paid by the public purse, but much more importantly, probably is representative of public trust and, and you know, is responsible for maintaining public trust. So, you know, we can think about similar things, for example, that happened uh, that you would have thought would have undermined public trust during Donald Trump's run for president. <laughs> um, I think of a few things specifically, yeah. yes. And again, you know, I think that it comes back to this idea that it is appropriate to hold people in positions of authority and power to standards that may be different from the standards that we might hold a 14-year-old boy to. And I feel that what Lorne was saying really did reflect Mm -hmm. what the majority, the vast majority of the public think about this case. And the idea that we would somehow make an internal excuse for this within the legal establishment, uh, you know, I have to say I, I was, I had my heart in my mouth for a number of weeks that the Judicial Council would do the right thing, but I believe they did. Mm-hmm. You talk at length with Lauren about his uh, efforts at Osgood in the area of community-based education, which I just love that phrase. I think that's so great. And his his um, reference to the fact that a university is situated in a community and it should be outward-facing rather than inward. Yeah, I mean, that, that initiative that Osgood students have to do 40 hours of community service, I think, is, is a wonderful one. Because... You know, especially if you look at the way that law schools are constructed, mm-hmm. they are elite establishments. People have competed to get there. They feel sometimes when they get there that they are now the special, the chosen, the anointed ones. <laughs> but of course, in reality, lawyers are only really going to be useful if they can ground their practice, just as you said, in the community. Lawyers are service providers. Right. And so I think, you know, anything that really tries to break down those barriers which absolutely exist all over the country between universities and their communities and law schools and their communities is really important. In other news, last Wednesday, October 4th, was SRL Awareness Day in law schools across Ontario. Groups of local SRLs attended class at Osgoode Hall and Windsor Law, and at Windsor, Osgoode, and Western participated in panel discussions with students and faculty about why so many people are representing themselves in court and what this means for future lawyers and their practices. The goal of SRL Awareness Day is to raise student and faculty awareness about the explosion in the numbers of SRLs, to introduce them to local SRLs and hear about their struggles, and to dispel some of the pervasive myths about SRLs. For example, that they are wannabe lawyers, that many are mentally ill, or that they are trying to cause chaos in the courts. In a nutshell, the aim is to humanize and normalize the SRL experience and to ensure that students have some essential facts about the SRL phenomenon, such as the finding in every major study that the primary reason for self-representation is the unaffordability of legal services. This is the third year that NSRLP has coordinated this event, and we have heard the same comments each year, both from students who are amazed at the volume of self-reps and impressed with the fortitude of the individuals they meet, and from SRLs who feel welcomed, heard, and gather some new optimism about the future of the justice system. 
Watch for next week's NSRLP blog, which evaluates the impact of SRL Awareness Day and how much work there is still to be done in law schools on this issue. Secondly, an interesting battle is developing between government agencies in the Northwest Territories over the way that legal aid decisions are made in relation to people with disabilities. Elizabeth Portman is a resident of the Northwest Territories, who in 2016 successfully brought a discrimination claim against the Territories Legal Services Board for refusing her legal aid using a blanket policy that neither accommodated her disability nor took into account its impact on her ability to represent herself. An adjudicator at the Northwest Territories Human Rights Commission found this denial to be unreasonable and systematically discriminating. Disappointingly, the Portman case was appealed by the territorial government, and a few weeks ago, the adjudicator's decision was reversed by the Northwest Territories Supreme Court. However, the Human Rights Commission is now appealing that decision, arguing that the adjudicator's decision in favor of Elizabeth Portman should stand. There is also a possibility, not yet confirmed, that Elizabeth Portman may appeal personally. We will keep you posted on these developments. Finally, our own Noel Semple, professor of law at Windsor and NSRLP advisory board member, has just published a book for the Canadian Bar Association on how law firms can find the sweet spot of combining quality services with accessibility and profitability. Law firm culture traditionally assumes that accessibility and profitability are always at odds. Noel, who focuses on what he calls personal plight clients, such as divorce or personal injury clients, does a brilliant job of exploding this myth. Among many other important arguments, Noel points to the potential for price certainty where services are offered on a limited retainer basis, also known as unbundled legal services, that allows for flat fees as well as the use of insurance to absorb unexpected costs. This is one of the best expositions yet of the possibility that lawyers can serve the public need for affordable legal services as well as developing a practical business model. We highly recommend Noel's book. As always, the links to more on these stories can be found on the Jumping Off the Ivory Tower webpage at representingyourselfcanada.com slash podcast. Next week's guest on the podcast is Rob Harvey, a family lawyer from Lethbridge who is also the chair of the NSRLP Advisory Board. Rob and I are going to be talking about the ways in which his views have evolved in 30 years of legal practice, and we're calling this one just a conservative Alberta lawyer. 